Uh, welcome back everyone to another episode of The Few. Hopefully since our last episode, you've inched a little bit closer to your goal. Uh, maybe you're finding it a little bit hard today, a motivational uh, hole. You might be thinking that, is it all worth it? Or what on earth is my purpose in life? And that's okay. These are all questions worth pondering, but equally they're all questions worth answering. Our guest today, super excited to have a chat to in my pre-show research. I was just thinking oh, high fives all around with regard to the philosophy and mindset, but also the area that, that Brian is focused on very much how we solve some problems between the enterprise and the entity and the individual, or what he would call the employer and, and the employee. With no further ado, I'll introduce him now. Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn what it takes to turn your dream into reality. Don't be afraid to dream big. But remember, dreams without gold are just dreams. This is The Few with Boo. Brian Adams, no, we're not getting summer of 69, but he is the rock star when it comes to people and making people feel valued. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show, mate. Hey, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, Brian, what is it about employees that we should value? Why are they important? Wow, that's a, that's a big question to start. You know, I think... In a world of technology, we're seeing AI all over the place. We've had a lot of volatility and change over the last few years. Businesses are coming around to the idea more and more now that people are the only competitive advantage left in business. Everything else can be commoditized, scaled, bought in, you name it, but people make the difference. And now you can argue more than ever, people are also waking up to the idea of quality of life and the choices they have around them. So the war for talent is still very much alive and it's getting tougher. So businesses need to be more strategic because people are being more deliberate about their career decisions. Is that across the board or is it a fight for talent? Are we seeing there's a lot of press now around the remote working concept, not necessarily working for the business or productivity. And perhaps people are kind of holding down two jobs, a side hustle and a real job. And I was just talking to a CEO today of a large publishing firm and he just has put the foot down and said, no, it's four days a week. You're in the office, normal work hours. You can work remotely once again. So when you're talking about employers and employees, are you saying there's every single position within the company is highly competitive now or you're 10%, you're 15%, you're high performers? Where is this a significant and I guess dramatic effect on an organization if not done properly? I think we've seen examples of it being right across the board. We've seen like through COVID, retail staff and first line people. We've seen corporate America and people in office blocks like leave, quit their job and, you know, the great resignation. It's across the board. If there's an element of competition, then an organization needs to work more strategically and harder to understand not the tension between, it's not a bargain that you know you've got to give a bit as an organization so people get more it's about aligning those things together in a very clear coherent way and a lot of organizations like your example forcing people to do things that don't necessarily fit their lifestyle is a precarious situation when other empathetic organizations 
are moving faster with the times to align with what's optimum for their people. It's a really interesting question, isn't it? I mean, I know if given a choice, I would work from home and bunk off and manage my own time and not necessarily uh, show up for the Zooms or I mean, I can't stand Zoom, to be honest. Do we paint a rosy picture? I know we're going down a remote work path. I know that's not your practice at work, but I just, I've just i just been really fascinated in the media in the last few days, just how prevalent it was. And that was just reinforced by a conversation today. It just feels like in the last week, the rubber band has just snapped the other way all of a sudden. I would imagine you're quite at the coalface on this because when you're looking at attracting talent and keeping people in there, where you work is going to be a fundamental issue. So where do you sit in regards of where and how people work by themselves and together. But I think every organization needs to work hard to find a middle ground that really, A, delivers the business results. You know, mostly when we talk about employer brand, we think empathetically from a position of people, candidates, and employees. But actually, the first step is what's conducive for business because without being able to hit business goals, everything else sort of falls away quite quickly. And then being open-minded enough to realize that if you want the best talent in the world, the best talent in each different area of an organization, then you do have to consider the competitive landscape, the change in expectations, wants, desires, preferences, et cetera, and, and find something that works for both. You find that large organizations like your Googles and Apples can demand people go into the workplace and a little bit more strict with that because they offer more salary, there's more benefits, there's more prestige and all of those things. It is about a give and get that works for your organization. So there's no right or wrong answer. There's so many different parts, but it, it's about waking up and intelligently looking at your organization and looking at the people, the competitive landscape and building your own strategy. So people are a competitive advantage. And of course, that doesn't just mean that they turn up at nine o'clock in an office building or sit at home and do the work you want them to do. You have to motivate these people. They need to be happy. They need to find a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging and a sense of, you know, their work matters. So there's a sense of impact as well. The remote working aspect is a really important aspect of employer brand now, because if you think employer brand is your foosball table and your cafeteria and, you know, all of those things in, a, in one designated area, then you're sorely mistaken and we're seeing organizations having to work extra hard to create a culture of behaviors and environment that they want and need because it's more difficult to do that when everybody is desperately um, working remotely, but it's perfectly possible. How do you find working with so many people? I, I remember my first company grew to like 6,000 people really quickly and I really had no idea what I was doing, but I just found it really hard. Like I just found it was like, it wasn't like an organization of 6,000 people. It was like 6,000 individuals almost every day needing something or wanting something. And maybe it was just really bad leadership and management on my side, which could have been the case. But, you know, like people are incredibly complex. There is no one person, right? And when you're looking at effectively and efficiency running businesses where everything kind of needs to be systemized and simplified and you need some level of conformity to make the system work properly, you can't have 6,000 snowflakes doing their own interpretation of what needs to be done. From a deeply human level, is this more about, you know, purpose is a big question. And I think in COVID and during the pandemic, a lot of people spent a lot of time working less intensely and started to realize, hang on, I'm missing a whole bunch of important life events here. And this is pretty good. And I don't want to go back to it. But as a big question, do people actually, you know, a lot of people say to me, I don't really know what my life purpose is or what, what my purpose is. How do you create that as an organization? Like how does an organization 
tell someone or express to someone that if you come here, we're full of purpose, that's a really hard thing to do, right? It is. And now it's even harder than it used to be because being a higher purpose organization used to be a competitive advantage, a point of difference. And now most organizations will quickly put their hands on their purpose and, and why you should buy into their organization. The trick is understanding a few things. One, why the purpose of your organization should be relevant and valuable to other people and being able to tell that story so you can compel people towards you. You know, people need to look at that and find a place where they fit in and that needs to translate. Personal purpose is different to the purpose of, of your organization, but if they can align, then you're onto something. And our approach to employer brand is very much leaning into who you are as an organization, talking about the adversities and the challenges that you will face, not just the sunny side, you know, the sort of rainbows and, and sunshine of, of an organization. And what we find is if you lean into the challenge aspect and the adversity and the sacrifices and commitments people have to make in order to thrive at your organization, then actually it sounds counterintuitive, but people find a sense of purpose and impact much easier because they know what they're up against. They can ask themselves, do I have what it takes to thrive here? You know, am I capable? So they find a bit of meaning and self-worth. And then, you know, you can inspire people and pull them in the right direction. And if you set out the proposition of what you've got to give, not just what you stand to get, then it's a little bit more tangible than just values that can be interpreted. And the idea, like with 6,000 people, for example, is you can have 6,000 people making individual decisions on a daily basis, but those decisions are all in line with how you want the culture to, to appear because you can't man-manage individually 6,000 people. That's impossible. So putting the guardrails around the culture and setting out expectations clearly is the only way to lead strategically and create a, a culture that's conducive to where you're trying to take the company. It's interesting, isn't it? You talk about employee value proposition and the employer brand, yet at the same time, you're almost talking about creating the strategy and identity of the organization. <laughs> it's, I presume you go in an organization to create that brand awareness for the employee and it's not there. You start to creep up the chain a little bit and say, hey, let's kind of iron this out. Let's jump back a bit, mate. Why are you doing this? Like talking about purpose, why, you, why did you decide getting organizations to engage their people in a more meaningful way was your bag? Why is this your gig? Is it what you dreamed of doing when you were 16 or what happened? So I'm a recovering marketer. I studied at school, branding, marketing, communications. And then I found myself in a job that I loved with a boss that I hated. 20 years ago, I was bawled out, shouted at by a huge, great big boss in an open plan office in front of about 50 people. I felt about four inches tall. So I went home that day spontaneously. I quit my job, started a company the next day. And my goal was to start a company and prove that you didn't have to be a horrible boss to create a, a thriving company. And we were a marketing agency for a number of years before we sort of fell into the, the, the niche of being able to market and brand companies on the talent side. And that's where we very quickly felt that, okay, this has got a lot of pair. This can impact millions of people. This tiny little agency can make a huge impact on the world. So we positioned ourselves to work with global brands with complex talent audiences. And, you know, slowly we've worked with most of the biggest brands in the world and impacted millions of career decisions. Our vision is everyone loves their job. 
we call ourselves the defenders of happiness. If you're not happy at work, you're not happy in life, right? So that's our purpose, you know, and that's what keeps us going in the, every day when we get up and go to work ourselves. Yeah, that work-life balance doesn't exist anymore, does it? Someone's explained to me the other day, it's about work-life integration. Like it's an acceptance that there's a merge and, and more so. I don't know whether you saw the whole Apple ski mask augmented reality get up, but if that's not bringing your home life and work life all together, that uh, nothing will. How do you see technology as an enabler to bring these worlds together? Do you see organizations leaning into that and saying, hey, we've got all this great new tech, let's embrace it? Or are we like, hey, bring your own device to work and we just want minimum investment in technology. We don't want the overhead. Well, I mean, who provides the technology, you know, really does depend on the size of the organization, et cetera, you know, but that's probably going to play a role. And it's interesting because I think people worry that AI will take your job. And I think people are starting to come around to the idea that that's not the case, but people that know AI might take your job. So it's about learning and staying relevant to organizations. So there's an obligation on the side of talent there. But ultimately, I think what we've learned from the great resignation in the last few years is People are now consciously aware of quality of life. And like you say, work-life balance is kind of not cutting it anymore. So it's like, I'll do that thing that really impinges the quality of my life in order to have a positive couple of days at the weekend. Like it's not working for people. So organizations need to sort of align with a proposition that proves quality of life. And if that means technology adds efficiency and improves the experience, your employee experience, then that's a good thing. And obviously there's then an opportunity to create more competitive advantage and create more alignment between what people want and what's best for business. And that's where the magic is. That's where the opportunity lies. It's interesting when I came across your book, Give and Get, and how simple that is as a concept and how difficult it is for people to do and do with authenticity it's not give with an agenda of getting it is that selfless giving in a survey i read last year there was an opinion that 69 percent of employees believe their boss is only in the leadership role for themselves right for their own personal enrichment that really they don't have their subordinates in any regard or have any interest in them whatsoever how do you build that culture like how do you create that authenticity around giving and selflessness and particularly when life gets harder and your survival instinct kicks in it's very hard to have that extra capacity so how does coca-cola authentically give to get everywhere in the world all the time well i think you've touched on something really interesting there and first like we could go down the rabbit hole of management training but actually conventional approach to culture naturally creates tension between managers and leaders and people and you know because everybody's making those assumptions and trying to figure out what's best for themselves and all the rest of it. As soon as you get more strategic and you do your research properly, so you can put something together that's authentic, you understand the leadership view. So you, you know, the direction of travel of the organization and what capabilities are required to drive business success. You under, understand the employee view of how it feels and where the sense of purpose, impact and belonging is coming from and where the opportunities to sort of generate more of that. And then look at the market view, like what are you up against to win? With those core ingredients, we can look at, okay, what reputation as an employer do we need to create to align all of these things? And that's the first big nut that you need to crack. And typically there's three types of reputation as an employer. There is organizations that trade on culture. 
like how it feels and like from an inclusion perspective and a team perspective. You've got organizations like Salesforce and HubSpot that do that really well. Then you've got career catalyst. Is this a place where I can accelerate my career? Amazon and McKinsey do that really well. They're not particularly warm and fuzzy places to go and spend your time, but you know if you invest two years of your time, you're going to be more employable and probably on a bigger salary and et cetera. And then the third and final one, which is actually probably the most important one in this day and age now, is this idea of citizenship. People are looking to organizations and to see whether they themselves as an individual or the company as a whole is in some way, shape or form that's relevant to them setting out to leave the world better than they found it. And this is becoming extremely prevalent now with Gen Z and millennials who are officially running the world at the moment. So all of those ingredients need to be readily aligned and in balance with what the organization needs to achieve and what people are looking for out of their life. And the organizations that do that are starting to emerge with a very simple, clear proposition of, listen, we can give you all of these things, but this is what we need in return. This is what it takes to thrive here and find that sense of purpose, impact, and belonging. And those are the organizations that are winning. It is a simple strategy, but simple isn't easy. Again, you've touched on something really insightful there. Just because something is simple doesn't mean it's easy, but the world is complex. Like, why should it be easy? Why should it be? Listening to your employees and finding the universal perspective is hard, but once you have it, life gets more simple and easy and people make better choices. I think that's the biggest mistake. I think I call it thought loops. The fact that you have to bring every feeling, thought and action back together and, and understand purposefully how actions affect feelings, how feelings affect thoughts and vice versa. And again, you're very insightful yourself there when you were talking about finding the time to have that feedback, the time to engage the workforce rather than be so busy. All we're doing is just sending direction down all the time and telling people what to do without the discovery. And it's, I've always found it quite fascinating because as a pilot, when you do your training around how you behave as a pilot with, with another pilot next to you under pressure, you certainly start to realize that actually when I'm under pressure, I'm probably not the most open and an available person to have elicit great ideas. And you deny yourself the great ideas as a leader and you start to to go down a rabbit hole yourself, I think. Hi, it's Boo here. If you're enjoying these episodes of The Few, please show your support by leaving a review. It costs you nothing, and the more reviews we have, the better guests we can reach out and bring onto the show to help you close the gap between what you want and where you are today even faster and help you on your journey to become one of the few too. Have you got an example of no names, no pactoral, of an organization you've gone into and you've just thought they couldn't be more possibly disconnected from their employees? I'm assuming they'd be okay because you wouldn't be there if they were absolutely not even on the radar. So I'm assuming that you're there so they have some idea of what they're trying to do. Can you give us an example of what not good looks like? Yeah. But by and large, most organizations that bring us in care about their people to a degree. But there is a small percentage of organizations that bring us in because they have a reputation challenge, a difficulty to harness their people or keep hold of their people because something is going horribly wrong. There is one organization which will remain nameless. We had a real difficult time working with because they just weren't willing to accept research and evidence of what it felt like to be an employee because what it looked like from a leadership position was very different and they wanted the brand to say one thing in the face of reality and we're not in the business of manufacturing and synthesizing a culture with messaging that just isn't true i mean it just doesn't work but one thing that made me chuckle at the time was the leaders of this organization vehemently believed that they were 
inclusive and they were just adamant that this is an inclusive organization. And as we went down the list of seniority, we found inclusion was diminishing rapidly to the point where if you're a middle manager, they believed it wasn't inclusive at all. And it wasn't until we did a workshop and sort of demonstrated the fact that the leaders, of course, they see it as an inclusive place because they can go anywhere, they can say anything, their opinions are listened to, you know, people stop and listen to when they've got something to say. So in their little bubble, it looked inclusive, but the organization wasn't at all. And a lot of the time, like 99% of the success of our work is about aligning everything from top to bottom. So that organization that I'm thinking of wasn't a great culture at all. And it took a long time for that organization leadership to really accept the mirror that we were holding up. And that quite often can be the challenge. I was doing a workshop with a company once and afterwards we went out and we were having a drink with the managers and one of the managers was was saying, you know, I've got a bloody open door policy. I don't know what their problem is. It's not my fault if the dickheads don't come in. And it's like, that's probably the emotional closed door that you've got there, mate. But it's quite fascinating that in some leaders, the awareness isn't there. The words come out, but actually, and I think this is a big failing of leadership development and training when you're trying to do leadership by rote. You see these textbook examples of trying to be a leader, but the EQ and the feel side really isn't there. In terms of being left behind, so pre-post-COVID, where are the sort of bigger established organizations being left behind and the more you insightful, progressive companies finding an advantage? That's a really good question, actually. What we're seeing now is most progressive organizations have a huge competitive advantage in the fact that They've listened, observed, and empathetically transformed into a completely different organization over the last three or four years. And they have a story to tell, like, this is who we were. This is what happened. This is how we reacted. And this is who we are now. And having that, co that story of how we've changed since COVID is incredibly, incredibly important, valuable to bringing authenticity and relevant to your employer brand. And those organizations that had a firm opinion and tried to make people do what was best for business without the empathetic aspect of listening, they're the organizations by and large are being left behind. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I just want to go back to give and get, sorry. When did you realize that? At what point in your life? Because for me, it was about 32 and or 33. And that, when someone explained to me the concept of ego and and actually, if you give more, you start to see the people that also reciprocate. You start to get a better peer group. Giving is the ultimate life improver. Did you have a moment or an epiphany or anything that, I mean, writing a book on it means you think deeply about it. So what drove that journey for you, that thought leadership? It actually started with an element of naivety when we stepped into the employer brand space many years ago. We didn't really accept that it was a lift and shift from marketing and branding strategy. We, from a position of naivety, we built our own framework from the ground up and we went into the first sort of raft of customers and we conducted the research just by listening and by juggling two or three clients, we could find commonality between them. And it occurred to us, it sort of jumped out at us when we were analyzing the research that the value wasn't in the shiny benefits, the real value that meant something to people was the acknowledgement and appreciation for how they perform under the conditions that are not optimum. That's how they felt a sense of purpose and pride. 
And when we dug a little bit deeper and we sort of experimentally put things together, that's when things really started to fit into place. And then randomly, I did a storytelling course with a guy called Robert McKee, who is like the Yoda of Hollywood and story architecture. He's an amazing guy, fantastic guy. I spent some time with him. I've interviewed him a few times. I've done all of his courses and he gets really deep, really quick, like psychology and meaning of life and all of those things. So we started to play with the concept of like the Stoics of the obstacle is the way. It all just emerged from there and it made a significant difference to how conventional employer brand was being done. So we knew we had something. We went down the rabbit hole and sort of built it from there. Historically, we've all avoided going deep, haven't we? Work is always this veneer. You always went to work, put your work face on, like the TV series Severance. I don't know whether you see, you hop in the lift, you go upstairs, you just literally, booms, life is over, in I go, and boom, I'm back, and I have no recollection, right? Because one of the challenges with the workplace is obviously people looking at a technical competency around certain deliverables, and you bring an enormously broad set of belief systems and structures into the organization, right? So you might have a culture in the organization, but you'll have someone from India and Pakistan who obviously have a very different belief system and baggage and employees from Sri Lanka and then some from China and Vietnam. Some people will have a migrant background. You'll have a, you're a white Anglo-Saxon, you're an African-American. A country is easier to manage culture than a business with all of these belief structures. And now, because it's almost like we're so free and open, we're actually creating challenge and conflict because of it. How do you, what you're saying is a company needs to create an employee brand proposition and a culture that effectively brings people with similar beliefs together? Or can you manage diverse beliefs within one organization's culture? I think it's really important to be so inclusive that you are a magnet to people bringing diverse perspective. Because we talked about people being the only competitive advantage left in business. And actually, it's a little bit more than that, it's the combination of different people adding up to something special. And to do that, you need a foundation of inclusion. And we've seen so many times that our job as an employer brand consultant and building strategy globally is to find the thread that goes right across the organization, regardless of where you're sat from a seniority perspective, from a geographic perspective from a tenure perspective, from a diversity perspective. We want to find something that everybody can identify with and authentically say, yeah, does feel like the heart of this organization. Now, how that shows up is different for everybody and that's okay. And that's where the magic is because you've got a plethora of different authentic stories to bring that to life in different ways. And what we want now is to make life easier, to bring people together, to be able to feel safe enough to share their different perspectives and tackle challenges from different angles because that's where magic happens and that's how we unlock the value of diverse talented workforces and we've been through the stage of we need to improve our diversity numbers because of the optics and now it's a very well-known fact that diversity of thought and diversity of culture is a business advantage for that innovative progressive sort of reason of, of driving the organization forward so Again, it's simple, but not easy finding that common ground and retaining the authenticity of diversity, but that's the job of employer brand. I love it. It's fantastic. So would you say now, Brian, you're living life on your terms that you're living a life where every day you wake up and think, yep, this is pretty cool. I'm living my personal purpose. I've created a, a purposeful environment for my people. Would you say that's 
the life you're living now? I couldn't wholeheartedly say just a simple yes to that, but I've optimized my own conditions and I've got a, a work-life integration that I'm really proud of and happy with. By and large, I, I run the business and I, I run my life on my terms and there's, there's always things to work on. I've got quite a, an unusual, complicated life, to be honest, as a lot of entrepreneurs have. But I think running an organization and having the awareness of everything we've just talked about has certainly contributed to me designing being at a time in life that we're we have to rewind because you unlocked a clanger, which is the complexity of the entrepreneur's life. And, and I love that because I've certainly, that's my lived experience. Let's go there because we do have a number of entrepreneurs on the show. We have a number of entrepreneurs listening. Is entrepreneurialism possible without complexity and without introducing challenges to your personal life, some of which are long lasting? Do you believe that you can have the same philosophy where you're talking about an organization? And let's be honest, people that work inside organizations have different risk profiles to entrepreneurs. They're looking for different things, different levels of support and security. Entrepreneurs happy without a safety net, happy to up the risk level. So how do you reconcile that in terms of those two worlds working in harmony? And I guess living the brand story yourself. Yeah. So I think it's a super interesting question. I think it's perfectly possible to figure it out as an entrepreneur, but I think when you correlate the desire, aspiration, and the energy an entrepreneur has, I think sacrifices are inevitable. And you know, a good entrepreneur or any entrepreneur gets up every day and the equity they create is about the decisions they make. And there has to be an element of sacrifice. Sometimes in my experience, and I've certainly made sacrifices I can tell you countless stories from my personal sacrifices that have driven business opportunity and also fulfilled the idea of meaning and purpose that is the real fuel of entrepreneurship, not the sort of revenue and finance side, but the sort of impact that you make. Life's complex. It's full of trade-offs and an entrepreneur will find the success by making the right decisions and then living with those decisions and being comfortable in your own skin doing that. And that's what I've found from my experience. I think also that it's almost the flip side of the coin when you're an employee and you're working for someone, it's very much about understanding what works for you. Am I comfortable here where the entrepreneur sits at the back of the queue and you literally take all the downside, whether it's there's no money to pay wages for whatever reason, we're in a downturn. Okay, well, I have to put money in then. I have to don't pay myself. I make all these really, really tough decisions. And I think there's some degree of masochism inside the average entrepreneur, myself included. So you've got to just feed that beast, I'm not sure. And I think really the crux of this question is entrepreneurs that run companies with lots of people, and as they go through that growth spurt and they start managing more people, often this starts to have that disconnect, right? The unmatched expectation, why isn't everyone not working as hard as I am? Everyone just keeps, you know, I just got to keep feeding mouths here. I think some of those are perfectly natural human feelings to have. What's your advice for an emerging brand and emerging culture? And, and when you're really busy as a leader in that role, you might be the whole C-suite yourself. What do you come back to what we would call as a fighter pilot situational awareness? Like what's the one of, we say, fly the airplane, right? If you fly the airplane, everything's going to be okay. But to keep everyone engaged and to not get that insidious kind of disengagement, do you have two or three like hot in the moment tips to bring them back to good? Well, I think as an entrepreneur, when you're a startup and you get to start a company, you'll never get this moment again where you get to design the reality that you want from a purely aspirational blank canvas. And it's much easier to design the culture you want than it is to try and change a culture that's not going 
great. But I think something you said like earlier on really sort of articulates it well. As soon as you put a layer of management in it in your organization that hasn't got the passion and drive and the authenticity, the belief, the energy, you know, the commitment to make any sacrifice required and all of that thing, like then the message is diluted and you've got to work really hard as a leader to make sure that that's instilled in everybody. And the only way to do that is well, a couple of things. One, keep it as simple as possible so everything is aligned. Two, make sure that your leaders really understand what they're there to achieve. And three, don't delegate so much that it's out of your hands. Like, you know, I think a great leader will still engage with communications and get back to the passion and the drive of what started everything and what keeps everybody motivated and moving forward. And that, I think that is true for a small team. And it's certainly true for, you know, a global organization of 6,000 people as, as well. So, you know, certainly in my entrepreneurial journey, I've had to remind myself that people are not as passionate as me. They will not make the same decisions in the same situation as me. And I need to be okay with that. But I need to work towards a lofty vision of bringing everybody along, knowing that they'll never all get there as fast or as the same point as me. That's really sage advice. So Brian, you've lived a full life. No doubt you've had a few ups and downs along the way, probably had a little bit of angst to deal with. If you were given the opportunity to go and say hello to your 14 year old self and you had 30 seconds, what do you think is one piece of advice you'd give yourself that could either accelerate the journey to where you are now, or maybe smooth out some of the bumps in the road? 30 seconds, I'd have to pack in a lot. I mean, it, I, it took me a long time to remove a limiting belief, a limiting mindset. It was nothing more than a belief that held me back for a number of years. The other thing is I realized late on in my entrepreneurial career that if you reach out to the ultimate mentor, there's actually a good chance that they'll answer you. So. The biggest reason that mentors don't help you, the number one reason is a lot of people don't ask. And I think if you can build a support network around you quickly and think bigger, your career will accelerate far faster and take you places that you never dreamed of. So that would be the message I would want to put into my 14 year old self. That's awesome. I think that's so true. And there's an element of fear, right? That self-worth of why would this person want to mentor me? And there's nothing more flattering than being asked to help be someone's mentor, is there? It's kind of like, a, oh, that's lovely. Yes, please. Can I? And I think that's probably an element of humanity where we don't ask for help enough, but we're willing to give it. Mate, thanks so much. I really, really enjoyed that conversation. It's really great to see brand and people articulated in the one sentence, but also to understand that it ultimately connected to purpose and feelings. And you have to be able to feel safe, feel good, feel as though everything you do each day has a purpose, but it might not be life purpose, but there's a reason you do it. You can see, okay, if I dig the hole here and put the dirt over there, we're going to put a post in there and we're going to fill it up and the cows aren't going to get out. That's a good day. No one wants to dig a hole because you get told to dig a hole. It's really powerful stuff. If you want to engage with Brian and, and engage particularly with his thought leadership, Give and Get is the book. It's not Give to Get. And that's a very important distinction, I think, which is available on Amazon. It's a bestseller. There's a gazillion five-star reviews for that book. And if you look at some of those reviews, you'll see that it's cultivating some profound thought around employee engagement and their journey. Also, PH Creative is the company that Brian founded. So if you find yourself kind of struggling with how to tell your story in a way that's authentic and keeps people engaged, then hey, just do what I did, Google PH Creative and it comes up right on top of Google search. So great marketing. So Brian, thanks so much for joining us today, mate. I really appreciate your generosity with sharing your story with the few. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me on.
pleasure. Well, that wraps another episode of The Few, and I'd like to thank our partners, without whom this episode wouldn't be possible. Firstly, Ode Management, an organisation that brings world-class speakers into your event or organisation to make a profound impact on your people to deliver the results that you want. And Afterburner, real-life fighter pilots, a team of men and women who for the past 25 years have helped organisations surpass their expectations, learning the tips and tricks fighter pilots use to win 98% of the time. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast, The Few with Boo, or our YouTube channel. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing the stories of these remarkable people with you. I hope that helps you keep the dream alive, but more importantly, equips you with a few ideas of how to turn those dreams into reality to help you become one of the few too.